At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 2. Paul's epistle to the Romans chapter 2. And we'll be reading the entire chapter up through the first four verses of chapter 3. Let's hear now the Word of God, beginning in Romans 2 verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to My Gospel. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we read from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 2. And let's focus our attention upon verse 1. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. If you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, if you pay careful attention, as as I trust you have been, as we've read it dozens of times in recent months, uh, it seems like dozens of times anyway, uh, as you've heard that passage read, I hope you notice a a very stark difference between the second half of Romans 1 and the content of Romans chapter 2. I hope you notice a big difference because there's a huge difference here. Paul begins Romans chapter 2 with the word therefore, which reminds us of the importance of considering what came previous to that Word. Therefore, he's saying on the basis of what I've just said in Romans 1, 18-32, regarding the unrighteousness of the Gentiles who suppress the truth, in light of what I've just said, listen, therefore, on this basis, therefore, I have something to say, and I have something to say, he says, to you. Now I want you to notice the difference between these two sections. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, in those 15 verses, 
Paul uses the third person pronouns 21 times. 21 times in 15 verses. People talk a lot about pronouns. What, you know, let's look at Paul's pronouns. They, their, themselves. Romans 1, 18-32, Paul's pronouns are in the third person consistently. He doesn't say things to you, your, yourself. He says things about they, them, their, those, themselves. 21 times in 15 verses as he applies the law of God to the Gentile world, which has the work of the law written on its heart. He keeps the pronouns in the third person as he's refuting and condemning and really dismantling the idolatrous, humanistic, Greco-Roman, globalist philosophy of life. Here are the, the, those that are promoting this global empire of idolatry and of humanistic self-confidence. Paul takes the time carefully, painstakingly to refute, condemn, and dismantle those that are out there. Those that are in this pagan, humanistic culture, he beats up on them. He beats the dead horse. He dismantles the dead horse into 12 pieces and mails it to the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul thoroughly refutes the pagan Gentiles with their humanistic ideology. And we've taken, I think, over 20 sermons to go through those 15 verses. And the reason we've done that is because that's essentially what Paul does. Paul has it under the microscope and he's carefully refuting it and we've sought to do the same thing. But all of that changes in chapter 2. All of that changes in chapter 2. Therefore, on the basis of what I've said about them out there with what they're doing, based on what I've said about them in the Gentile, pagan, humanistic, globalist culture, therefore, you. One of the most important, maybe the second most important three-letter words in all the Bible behind God, of course. But you. 35 times in chapter 2, Paul uses the second person. You. Yours yourselves, you. And you can see very clearly that as he's preaching the Gospel, he sets it up, he he lays this well-constructed trap, if you will, by setting forth and by refuting and dismantling the pagan Gentile philosophy of unbelief and and all of these things. He lays it out there. He refutes it. But you can see that as he's preaching his Gospel, the fish that he's really trying to catch... Um, the one that he's really shooting for is, well, he says it, to the Jew first. He starts with the Gentiles, but it's as a setup. He lays this trap, and and in chapter 2, verse 1, this trap springs into action because perhaps there have been those who have been sitting in the back, no offense if you're sitting in the back, but just conceptually, sitting in the back, and amen, Paul, amen, brother Paul, you're really hitting the ball out of the ballpark, the shame and the perversion of the Gentiles, their their murder, their immorality, their wickedness, their evil-mindedness, all these things, amen, Paul, 
But, Paul says, therefore, you. Now, what he said in chapters, in, at the end of chapter 1 is absolutely true. In no way is Paul backpedaling or walking that back. He has said very clearly that the Gentiles are under the wrath of God. The last verse in the chapter, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul gives no inch, not even a centimeter of compromise to the pagan Gentiles, and yet, therefore, you, 35 times in this chapter. And you can see Paul is beginning to preach. Right? Paul's been giving a lecture on Gentile history. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he told us just before he launched off, he said, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome also. And of course, he's been setting it up, but now he's beginning to preach. He's beginning to preach. He's not lecturing. He's not just setting forth certain principles He's not merely teaching, He's preaching. And that's a sign of true preaching. A standard that I can only hope to live up to occasionally, but the fact is what preaching should be, what preaching ought to be, is directed to the hearer, you. Now there is a time for they, them, and there, and Paul uses it as we've tried to use it in our series to set up the springing of the trap of self-righteousness, but the fact is eventually it has to come back home to you. Paul begins to preach. You see this same tactic used in Acts chapter 2 with Peter at Pentecost. He confronts the Jews in the streets of Jerusalem and he doesn't flatter them. He speaks to them directly and he says, you crucified the Lord of glory. Something that Uh, very easily could have gotten Peter crucified uh, and the apostles crucified. But he had the guts to say, you, you crucified the Lord of glory. You need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, because the promise is to you and to your children and all who are afar off. Save yourself from this wicked generation. You. And in Paul's shepherding ministry of the various churches throughout that are described throughout the New Testament you see this same emphasis Colossians 1:28 him we preach him we preach well, what does it mean for Paul to preach it's not just to refute pagan ideologies and show that the Christian worldview is superior and to hide behind that but he says him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, he says. Every person. You. Not not them out there with what they are doing. You. You. That's what Paul's saying to the Colossians. That's what he's saying here as he sets forth His Gospel preaching to the Roman congregation of believers. You. Whoever you are who judge. Who's He talking about here? When He says you, of course, we can generally surmise that He's talking to us, that He's talking to everyone who reads this epistle, but who is the you? Whoever 
you are who judge. And it's quite obvious that in general terms, he's speaking of anyone who condemns the idolatrous, humanistic, Greco-Roman culture. He's saying, not that it's wrong to condemn it, he's just condemned it, but he's saying it would be wrong to condemn it without applying that exact same moral standard to yourself. In other words, if you're trying to condemn what they are doing out there, but you're not using that same standard of the law of God to apply it to yourself in here, then you condemn yourself. And this is at the heart of self-righteousness. He's saying that anyone who condemns what the pagans are doing with all of their shame and perversion and wickedness, if that's what you're doing, you're applying that standard to other people, are you applying it to yourself? Because you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. If you apply the law of God to others, then the law of God applies to you. And so that's why you, he says, need the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. You need a righteousness that is not your own because the fact of the matter is that the same law that you use to bludgeon the unbelieving pagan Gentiles out there That same law, if it's applied to you, puts you under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against you. So, yes, call the Gentiles to salvation and repentance. Uh, Travel over land and sea to win a convert, as the Pharisees did. But not if it's to win them to a conversion that says, really, you just need to adopt certain social and political and ethical principles and be just like me. But no, a gospel that says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. The law applies to all of us. I'm a sinner. I've committed many of the sins that are listed at the end of Romans 1. And so have you. So you need to repent and believe in Christ and be saved. But he says, if you're applying that law to people out there, but not to yourself in here, you're actually condemning yourself. That's generally speaking. Specifically, It's almost undeniable that Paul has in mind the unconverted Pharisaical Jews. That's who he's speaking about. In the first century, these are the people who opposed the Lord Jesus Christ, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Luke chapter 18. So he's speaking to the Jews. He doesn't come out and say it right away because again, he's springing the trap But it's very clear that those who are judging the Gentiles, eventually he speaks of them quite quite transparently as those who are called Jews. Uh, Later on as we read, he says, verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew. Now he's not introducing a new character into this dialogue. But he's saying you, the you that I've been talking about all along, you who condemn those who are out there, you who are part of the Old Testament visible church, visible worship assembly, you who have the law of God, you who condemn the the globalist Greco-Roman culture and all of its evil, you are called a Jew. So he's speaking specifically to these self-righteous, pharisaical Jews, we know they tried to infiltrate the church at various points. Paul deals with that in the book of Galatians. And Rome was filled with Jewish synagogues. 
And so it's likely here that he's referring to the Jew because there are so many Jews in that culture, in that society, that very likely someone will have invited their friend or neighbor to come and hear the Word of God read and preached in that or in those collection of Christian churches in the city of Rome that are going to receive this letter. And so he's, he's speaking to the Jew directly because there are Jews who would be under the preaching and the reading of God's Word. But also the fact is that there might be false teachers or false brethren that have crept in unawares, as Galatians says, who are beginning to preach a false gospel of justification by works, whether works of the ceremonial law or the moral law. There's no strong indication from Romans that that's the case, but it could be at least somewhere in the back of his mind. In addition, many of the members of the Roman church here had been Jews. They had been Jews. I mean, ethnically they're still Jews, but religiously they're now Christians. They're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah and as their Lord. And so perhaps there's a residual effect of this Jewish self-righteousness that has crept into their own thinking. Remember, we know there was a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles at this time. And so, uh, for that reason, some of these uh, Jewish sensibilities, these holdover sentiments from their unconverted life as Pharisaical Jews in the synagogue may be coming to life and Paul is preaching the Gospel in such a way as to make sure that he does beat that dead horse as well. So that he's speaking to the Jews. The Jews who might be tempted to say, again, Amen, Paul. Absolutely. Now, this is not uncommon throughout the Old Testament prophets. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ. And we said that that in some sense refers to his prophetic preaching ministry. But you see this among other prophets, namely in the Old Testament. Those of you that are familiar with the prophet Amos, you know that the approach that Amos takes in his prophecy has been called a spiral prophecy because he begins with the nations and peoples in Israel's general uh, region. He begins on the outskirts with these surrounding nations and he begins to spiral it around in condemning the sins of this nation and that nation and Moab and Edom and all these groups. And then eventually, he critiques the Israelites to the north, the nation of Israel. And he rebukes them and confronts them for their sin. And then he comes and and rebukes the people of Judah to the south who had the temple. So he begins by using this sort of common... Uh, consensus this is what the Gentile nations are doing it's evil it's wicked will you join me in condemning it he gains momentum they're following they're tracking with him amen amen Amos this makes sense but then when Amos begins to rebuke the sins of God's people you'll recall that uh, the king to the north sends a messenger to him and says you know basically you need to find another place to preach. This is the king's territory. Uh, But this is what Paul is doing. He's doing it just as Amos and other prophets did in the past. He speaks generally to all who employ any moral standard to condemn the sins of others. He's speaking specifically 
to the Pharisaical Jews who condemn the Gentiles, but then who think that their obedience is sufficient for salvation. They're not applying the law to themselves with the rigor they apply it to the Gentiles. And of course, indirectly, indirectly, this applies to all of us. Paul is speaking to me. He's speaking to you. Therefore, you. you, Do you make moral judgments concerning the behavior of other people? Do you make judgments about the activities and actions that they're taking? Do you share Paul's perspective in the second half of Romans chapter 1 regarding the cultural declension, the wickedness that prevails outside the covenant community? Paul is speaking to me. He's speaking to you. Indirectly, but in a way directly. He's speaking to all of us. And some people say, well, I don't make moral judgments. I don't make moral judgments. I don't believe in absolute right and wrong. It's all relative. What's right for one person could be different from what's right or wrong for another person. And so I'm going to exempt myself because I'm not judging anybody. Right? They're going to say, well, the you refers to you who judge, but I don't judge. I'm okay with all the stuff Paul mentioned there in those verses at the end of Romans chapter 1. I don't judge anybody. Jesus says, judge not in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. And so they say, I don't judge anybody, and therefore I'm not under judgment. I can just continue to stroll through life the way I want to live. What do we say to that? Well, first of all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not forbidding the making of judgments. In fact, elsewhere, John 7.24, He commands His people to judge with righteous judgment. Not according to appearances, but according to truth. So He's actually commanding us to make moral judgments. In addition, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, the opening verses, He says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, He's speaking of hypocrisy. I'm going to condemn the stuff out there, but not deal with the stuff in here. And He says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Uh, Or how do you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrites. Jesus is dealing with hypocritical judgments. He's not forbidding all judgment, all moral judgments, which would make no sense because the whole Bible is filled with moral judgments, including Romans 1 and Romans 2. Right? Because the the biggest inconsistency is the person who judges you for judging somebody, right? They say, well, you're judging. Jesus said not to judge, and therefore that's wrong. Well, wait a second. You just judged me for judging other people, um, and now I'm going to judge you for judging other people for judging other people. It makes no sense. It's total hypocrisy, or at least logical inconsistency. Jesus commands us to make judgments, but right, truthful judgments, not hypocritical judgments. He says, first, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus says, actually, I want you making judgments. But if you don't deal with the sin in your own life, you're going to be blinded to the sin that you need to help other people to deal with. So I want you to help that person remove the speck, 
from their eye, but you're not going to be equipped to do that if you've got a log blocking your own vision. And then he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So how do you know who the dogs or the swine are if you don't make moral judgments? So you start to think about some of these statements that you hear. They don't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus is not saying don't judge. He's saying judge yourself first and have accurate perspective to help other people with their problems and with their sins. And so Paul is speaking to all of us. We all make these judgments. And, and the person who says, I don't make moral judgments, I would respond by saying this, do you believe that the Holocaust was wrong? Do you believe that the Holocaust was wrong? And let's, in fact, let's go on the radio or on television and let's have you answer that question. And then we'll take a poll to see what people think of your answer. See, the fact is, if you say, I don't make any judgments... And then you say, I don't even make a judgment against the slaughter of millions of Jews. You've lost your credibility. In fact, you've proven yourself to be an evil and wicked person. Because you can't even see the evil of mass murder. Uh, What if I asked you, was the slave trade evil? If you can't morally condemn the slave trade, I would argue that you are fighting against your better judgment in your conscience and you're just trying to make a point, but you can't actually live like that because if they gassed your grandmother or if they took your sibling or your child on a slave ship to a foreign land and abused them and enslaved them, my guess is that you would make a moral judgment against that. I mean, you're making moral judgments against people who just make moral judgments. How much worse people that enslave people or murder them. So there's no credibility whatsoever in the person who seeks to exempt themselves from Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to say, I don't make judgments. Yes, you do. You just made one. You just made one. Now, Paul goes on. He says, therefore you, O man... Oh man, reminds us of the very beginning of his treatment of human sin back in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All the sinfulness of men. And here, the person, as it were, sitting in the back, clapping and cheering for this refutation of the idolatrous humanistic worldview, that person is, whether they know it or not, exempting themselves from that category. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. Therefore, you, oh man, you're a human being. God made man upright and man sought out many devices. You are a human being. As Nathan said to David, you can recognize the sin that I've described and this picture that I've painted in the parable of the man who stole somebody else's little ewe lamb that he had as a pet and slaughtered it 
as a feast for his guest. You can see the sin in that man, but David, you are the man. You are the man. Not in the sense we say that if somebody hits a three-pointer. You're the man. No. You are the man. You. And that's what the text forces us to grapple with. And so as I hear that, therefore you, O man, I'm hearing that in my heart. Me. Is that what you're hearing? Or are you hearing somebody else? Are you tempted to be looking around? No. Therefore you. Therefore me. Me. Paul's not going to let us get ourselves off the hook here as the Pharisaical Jews were wont to do. Remember when Jesus confronted Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the teacher of Israel. Notice Jesus doesn't call him a teacher of Israel in Greek. There's a definite article. The teacher of Israel. This is the man who either was or people thought he was, or perhaps he thought in his own mind that he was the guy. The guy. The teacher. The expert. But Jesus has to remind him in John chapter 3. He has to remind him most assuredly. Verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Don't be surprised, Nicodemus. Don't be shocked when I say to you, you must be born again. You. And he goes back and forth using the plural and the singular. He's talking about Nicodemus. He's talking about the people of the Jews who fancied themselves to be saved. When John the Baptist preached to them, they said, we don't need to repent. We have Abraham as our father. And John the Baptist said, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And Jesus elsewhere said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You need to be born again. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when I'm speaking to you, the teacher of Israel. And if Jesus can speak to an ordained theologian, pastor, and preacher in the first century Jewish church, in the covenant community, how much less surprised should we be when Paul speaks to every church member in the congregations in Rome, even to us, as members of the church? I mean, I can understand this person, that person, those Gentiles out there. Yes, Paul, they need to be born. No, Jesus is saying, you must be born again. Because you came into the world conceived and born in sin. So being a covenant child, having Christian parents, gaining something of an understanding of biblical doctrine, as we'll see later in our chapter, None of these things change the fact that you are a human being conceived and born in sin. None of these things can save you. Your baptism can't save you. Just as their circumcision couldn't save them. You need to be made a new creature. You need to be born again. And I want to urge you parents, as you're raising your covenant children, to keep this in mind. That it is not only your duty to warn your children of the sins that are out there in the world. 
It is not only your duty in family worship to beat the dead horse of paganism and to divide it up and dissect it and showcase its futility. That is not your only responsibility. I'm not even sure it's your primary responsibility. It's up there for sure. But you have a duty to talk to your children and say, this is what the law of God says to you. This is what the law of God says, not to the people out there, to you. Not to the people in the pride parade. Is there a pride parade in your heart? You need to be born again. You need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need the righteousness of God through faith. And if you look at our covenant of baptism, I would encourage you parents this afternoon, go back and look at that, at the vows, the promises that many of us have made where we promise to teach our children about the Word of God. Teach them to diligently read the Bible. Just take that as one example. There are many commitments and promises in those vows. But, but think about that. Are you teaching your children to read the Bible and to apply it to themselves? Uh, we have to evangelize our children. We can't just turn them into cultural, worldview Pharisees that can refute all that's happening in, in you know, they, they, they can explain to you why they're a Republican, but not why they're a Christian. That's a problem. Perhaps on multiple fronts, but that is a problem. We need to apply the law of God to ourselves. We need to apply it to our children. We can't simply practice Romans 1 parenting, where we go through all the stages of decline out there. We need Romans 2 parenting. You, 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 yourself. Therefore you, O man, are inexcusable. Inexcusable. What does that mean? Well, it's essentially the same thing Paul says at the end of chapter 1, toward the end, actually at the beginning of the end, if you will. In chapter 1, verse 20, at the end of that verse, he speaks of the Gentile pagans. He says that they are without excuse. They have the existence and to some extent the attributes and the moral law of God revealed in creation and conscience. Therefore, they've suppressed that truth in unrighteousness and they are without excuse. They can't, say, they can't plead ignorance. They've received enough truth that they've suppressed to hold them guilty of sin. They've never heard the gospel per se. And whatever Jews they've run into, they, they haven't been very interested to hear more because They've blasphemed the name of God because of the hypocrisy of the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 24. But the fact is they're without excuse. But he says to the Jew, you're without excuse. And he says to us, you have the Bible. You have the Gospel. You have, spiritually speaking, a silver spoon in your mouth if you're a covenant child from day one. From day one. You have it all. You're all the more without excuse. You're all the more inexcusable. This word could be translated indefensible. Indefensible. When your case comes before the throne of God's justice and you're standing there, it will be indefensible. Jesus says it will be so indefensible for those who heard the preaching of the Gospel that literally the men of Sodom will rise up and condemn you in the judgment. That's how indefensible your case 
is going to be. The men of Sodom who were so addicted to perversion that after they were struck blind, they're still trying to get in the house to do their wicked, evil, perverse deed. Right? They're blind and they're still trying to get in there and, and do whatever they're trying to do. Uh, those people are going to feel bad for you on Judgment Day. And that's the clear teaching of the Bible. We need to be careful as we sift through chapters like Romans 1 that we don't forget that you and I come into this world dead in trespasses and sins, corrupted by the flesh. And every Christian here today, we need to remind ourselves of where we came from, if we're saved. I've been speaking to you to consider whether you're saved. But if you have assurance of salvation, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that it is only the mere, sheer mercy of Jesus Christ that saved you. His righteousness, His sacrifice, His blood, sweat, and tears for your salvation. That's it. Apart from Him, you are inexcusable. And another way to translate this word is that there's no apologetic. It takes the word apologetic or apology, and then it negates it. No apologetic. There's no apologetic. Paul has hit every one of us with a devastating left hook to the jaw. And my friends, your righteousness is down for the count. You're not getting up. Not for the ten count, not for eternity, unless you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God. You and I are not getting up from this. We're inexcusable and there's no apologetic. And that's a reminder to us of who's actually on trial when we read the Bible. Some people pick up the Bible and they read through it and they're sifting through it, looking for something to critique, looking for something that seems inconsistent, looking for something, you know, not like a Berean to see if these things are so, but to see that these things aren't so, to pass judgment on the Lord and His Word and the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friends, Christ is not on trial, even when He was on trial. It's actually Pilate that was on trial and who will be held accountable for His actions. We're on trial. The Lord searches your heart and your mind and my heart and my mind. It's not God on trial. You're on trial. And you can see Paul bringing this out uh, we, we won't belabor it because God willing we'll have future weeks to do this, but he, he unleashes upon these self-righteous individuals who forget all the advantages they've had, the goodness of God, His long-suffering toward them, His revelation of His law and of His covenant and all of these things. He says, you're going to need a good defense attorney to get out of this one because humanly speaking, it's indefensible. You're going to need, in fact, there's only one defense attorney. 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. This is a beautiful gospel verse. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's always the goal. That's why we should read the Bible. Hide it in our heart that we might not sin against God. But he says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, 
Now, the beauty of the gospel is that it applies just as universally as the law in this sense that if you've sinned, the law applies to you. If you believe in Christ, the gospel applies to you. In fact, anyone who is a sinner, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if you are a sinner, you will be damned to hell by the law if you're outside of Christ. But if you are a sinner and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive Him as your prophet, your priest, your king, your defense attorney, your advocate, then you will have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus has never lost a case. You'll be declared guilty, but the punishment, the debt, the fine has been paid. Jesus has never walked out of the courtroom without his client with him. You need a good lawyer. You need Jesus. And Paul says you condemn yourself. You condemn yourself. Again, the Jews would have said something to this effect and and we're tempted to say it. I'll speak for myself. I can easily fall into this. We could say, of course, the humanistic Gentiles condemn themselves. They're the ones who are just a a bag of internal logical contradiction. They are self-refuting. Their whole worldview, their idolatry, their foolishness, they profess wisdom, but they're fools. Look at the logical inconsistency. Look at the hypocrisy of the Gentile world. Look at our culture. Look at the insanity. And my friends, that seems to be the order of the day, right? That's what the radio and TV talk show people on the conservative side and the, the, uh, uh, the humor websites and videos, I mean, that's what they're focusing on. Look at the utter insanity and inconsistency. Total hypocrisy. And that's all they can see. And it's easy for us, like the Jews of old, to fall into that as our only focus. But Paul says, that's true, but... Uh, The conservative moralists are hypocritical as well. And unless they find righteousness in Christ and the wisdom of God through the Scriptures applied to their own hearts, they're not going to be in a position to point out the speck or the log in anybody else's eye across the political aisle. You condemn yourself. This is the case culturally among what we might say uh, are red state conservative moralists. And we find ourselves as Christians tempted to align with these folks at time, times. Maybe there's a co-belligerency at times and, and it's not really my purpose or expertise to delve into that particular question. But, but look at the red state conservative moralism that you see in society today. Conservatism or moral ethical principles, traditional values outside of Christ and His Gospel, which condemns us all, humbles us all, and exalts the glory of God. This red state conservative moralism is intoxicated with its moral judgments. With the hypocrisy and injustice that it sees on the quote-unquote political left. And you hear the, the outcries Death to all tyrants. But my friends, we need to realize the law of God proclaims death to all sinners. 
The wages of sin. Not their sin. They, them, theirs, themselves. You. Your. Yourself. Your sin and mine. Culturally or individually. The moralists condemn transgender. Well, in a way, rightly so. That's ungodly. But, they condemn transgender. But, they don't seem so eager to condemn the lewd calendar that's hung up at the mechanics workshop. They don't seem so eager to condemn the lewdness that you see in some ways worse on a station like Fox News than than even CNN at times. But I haven't seen enough of either one to speak on that in more recent uh, times. But often the case. Often the case. Oh, transgender, that's evil. But heterosexual immorality, well, that's just, uh, you know, Boys being boys, as they say. Living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Well, you know, that's not such a problem. They condemn abortion and sodomy. Uh, But just reading my notes here, pride, anger, name-calling, the taking of God's name in vain. These are things that the red state moralists don't seem so concerned about. They want to save Christmas. They want to promote Christmas. They want to save Christmas uh, from the Grinch of liberalism, but they'll trample the Sabbath. They'll trample the Sabbath without a second thought. They're afraid of a prison planet, of socialism and communism, but as we speak, they're enslaved to the devil and they await chains of darkness for all eternity. There's your prison planet. You're prepping for the so-called apocalypse culturally, economically, but what about eternity? Are you prepared for that? Because your silver and gold isn't going to be worth a dime at the last day if you're outside of Christ. You condemn President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Pete Buttigieg. You're going to be right next to them for all eternity if you're outside of Christ. If you don't confess your sin. If you don't apply the law of God to yourself. If you don't secure your own mask before assisting others. You, and assuming they're unconverted, that's a whole other question, but I suspect you think they are. They seem to be on the outside, but Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Pete Buttigieg, if they're going to hell, you'll be right next to them for all eternity. And it won't matter whether you are a red state or a blue state, a Democrat or a Republican, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And that's why, just as an aside, we have to be careful in conservative political movements in our day where you see a rise in influence among what two groups? What two groups? And Evangelicals are active to one extent or another in promoting certain biblical principles within the broad swath of conservatism. But what two groups are at the front and center of red state moralistic conservatism? Jews and Roman Catholics. Those who deny the gospel of the righteousness of God and who rest in their own good works add Mormons to the list. So, be careful that you're not highly influenced by people whose theology is one of self-righteousness and it begins to flow out and ooze into their political approach. 
Well, we condemn ourselves culturally. And just in closing, we condemn ourselves personally. Personally. I want us to think about this. Are there people in your life that have sinned against you and have not repented? And you're upset about that. It could be people in the workplace. It could be people in the church. It could be people in your own family. It could be people, who knows who it is. But you're angry about that. Or at the very least, you're offended. And you would even perhaps think about, well, God is going to judge them for that. God is going to bring judgment. And perhaps there are people, I've, I've heard people say this, surely a good God would not allow fill in the blank to escape His judgment and wrath. Surely if God is who He says He is, then He would not allow fill in the blank this person to go to heaven or to escape His judgment. Because God's, God, if He's good, would see all that He or she has done to wrong me and to wrong others. And therefore, if God is really a good God, He would never let that person into heaven. He would never allow that person to escape His wrath and His curse. You're making a moral judgment. And you're saying that person deserves to go to hell. They deserve God's judgment because of their sin against you or against your loved ones. But my friends, understand what Paul is doing as he turns the tables. Listen to verse 3. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same... Now, by the way, what does he mean when he says doing the same? He means violating the same moral standard that is revealed by the same lawgiver, the same God. James 2 says you break one part of God's law, you've broken the whole thing. Right? It's like a vase. You know, oh, but I only took the hammer to the bottom part of the vase. Well, the whole thing's going to collapse. The whole thing's going to be dashed to pieces. You break the same law given by the same divine lawgiver. You've committed sins in the same category of sin. So maybe you haven't murdered, but you've had unjust anger or hatred in your heart. Maybe you've not committed adultery, but you've had sinful lust in your heart, looking with lust at a woman, so on and so forth. Perhaps you've even committed the same sin to the same extent or even a greater extent. 1 Corinthians 5.1 says something was happening in Corinth that even the Gentiles were afraid to talk about. That can happen. But one way or another, you've done the same thing. You've violated the law of the same just and holy God. And he says, do you think, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think you'll escape? Well, I can tell you that there's only one way of escape. And that way of escape is to say with Isaiah, woe is me for I am undone. To say I am a man of unclean lips. To say with the the tax collector at the temple, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Not looking around everybody else saying, well I sinned, but then this factor and that factor and all these mitigating circumstances, Lord forgive those others. No, forgive me, I've sinned, it's me, I take it, 
I admit it. I confess it. I need an advocate. I receive Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And I trust that when I come to stand in the judgment, that I will not be moved because of Jesus Christ, because of His righteousness, because of His work of salvation at the cross, rising again from the dead for my justification. What is Christianity to you? Is it a cultural refuge from the pagans and the the leftists or whatever group that you're upset about? Is it a philosophical weapon to be deployed against people that have unbiblical ideologies? Is it a superiority complex? What is it? Because for Paul, and I trust for every believer in here, it's God's grace to the worst of sinners. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Your almighty sovereign grace. And we pray that You would manifest it here, that we would see our self-condemnation, that even our consciences declare that we have sinned and that we need a righteousness that is not our own. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. Help us to trust Him. Help us to humble ourselves and walk in Him. For His sake, Amen.